Well, good morning and happy Sunday to you. Uh, we have a tradition here at New City Church. Uh, every 4th of July weekend, we do things a little bit different and have a live Q&A Sunday. And so I had someone ask me yesterday if I had prepared for the questions, to which I responded, I have no idea what they are. And so literally, Dave, Christine, and I have no idea what you're going to ask. But if you have questions about God, faith, Christianity, text them in. Your name, your number will not be shown on the screen, um, but we'll put them on the screen as we'll go through it. My name is Dylan. If you're new, the pastor here at New City Church, join my wife, Christina, and Dave, who's on the management team here and as our resident or wise one, or some people say old wise one. Um, and we're just going to... I'm the token old guy. We know go. that. And we're going to answer your questions. I uh, just want to give this caveat. Again, we haven't seen these before, um, and we're going to try to go just a couple minutes at each one. And so to say a lot of these things could probably be spoken to or talked to a lot longer than we're going to give it. Um, so give us some grace there, but we just kind of want to have a conversation and encourage all of us to know that God is a God who welcomes our questions, and the only way we can grow closer to Him and know Him better is to ask them. And so we're going to do our job today to try to help that as best that we can. And so with that, we'll start with a first question, which is this. I was told that there was a funny question. They wouldn't tell me what it was. Why weren't men, crushed, why weren't men with crushed testicles allowed to become priests? So I don't know if that was a funny one or not. I don't even... I'm not laughing. <laughs> Pass. Hard pass. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to model the answer that is really true in many questions in my life, and that would be, I don't know. Yeah. Joe, who spoke last week, is our resident scholar, Old Testament scholar, and he's not up here right now, so I don't know what to say. Where's Joe yeah. when you need him? <laughs> we'll go to do a... Adam, to... was this the icebreaker you promised? <laughs> like, the easy question that would be easy for me to answer to start off, right? It was actually Joe's question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So those of you that don't know, Joe, who is here in New City, he spoke last week. He's getting his PhD in Old Testament. He couldn't be here this morning because he had a family emergency. He promised to text a hard question. So thanks Thank to you. Joe. <laughs> Next question. Dylan will blog about it later this week. Yeah. Um, did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God do something else? Okay, I'll try to say something while Dave figures out the answer. Yes uh, and yes. Okay, go for it. Yes, give us some more. That was it. Yes. <laughs> would you like more? Yeah, I would. Um, did Jesus have to die? In, in the way that God has created the universe and the world, and in his foreknowledge, knowing what people would do, uh, if you go all the way back to Genesis, you will see that even in Genesis, in the fall, God is talking about that there will be redemption for man, and that there will be enmity between the woman and the snake. And, but even in there, he talks about that there will be a future redeemer, it's in Genesis 3, and I'm blanking on the verse, but... Um, 3.15. 3.15. There you go. Um, so, yes, Jesus had to die in order to accomplish what God's goal was, which was to redeem for him a people, for, for him to love and for his own possession, that he would actually be able to redeem us from sin and transform us into who he always intended for us to be. So, yes, Jesus had to die uh, in order to accomplish that in the way God set things up. Could God do something else? Yes. He could have allowed man to perish in our sin. He could have said, I don't love you that much. Uh, I'm not going to make a way for you. He could have lamented that humans were so sinful and so corrupt, and he could have just said, I regret uh, ever making them and wipe us out. He could have done almost anything that would fit with his character, but because God is a God of love and he is a God of foreknowledge and he knew what was going on, the plan he made for salvation was for Jesus to die. So I would say, yes, Jesus had to die. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the only way for that not to have happened is one of two ways. One, for sin never into the world, which it did. Or secondly, for God not to do something to redeem us, to bring us back to him, because God is perfect, holy, and just. We said this first service, one of the unique things about Christianity is the only religion in the world where people who actually get the goal of that religion, per se, uh, heaven, nirvana, enlightenment, whatever it is, that people that actually go there, that something was done with their sins. It wasn't forgotten. It wasn't pretend like it didn't happen because all of us fall short that God actually sent Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Um, could God have done something else? <clears throat> I would, I mean, possibly, but I don't think he could have done anything else for us to actually get to be enter, enter into his kingdom, or else he would. Jesus even asked the night before he was to be betrayed that God would take this, pass this cup from him, which I think is ironic, not ironic, maybe I'm a little mean sometimes. <clears throat> when people say there's multiple re- ways to God, why would Jesus have come if he didn't have to? The answer is he wouldn't to be brutally uh, murdered, to be scorned, to be mocked, to be made a a liar, to do all these things that he, if he did not have to come, he wouldn't. The reason he came is because there was and there is no other way. And so that's what we would say to that. Next question. Uh, What would you say to someone going through a legitimate crisis that is questioning their lifelong faith? Yeah, that's really hard, and especially not knowing the legitimate crisis that's going on. Um, but the short answer to that would be life is hard, and, and we do live in a broken, sinful world. Um, and so, and it's not God who does all those broken crises. It's not God who's punishing you, per se, for whatever it is that you're going through. I think a lot of people want to place themselves at the center of their story. So if, if their life isn't going good, it's like, what did I do to deserve this? It's kind of the position that we put ourselves at a lot. Um, and I would say there are a lot of really hard things that just happen in life because we live in a broken world, like natural disaster, like miscarriage, like death, all of those things, disease, cancer, all of that. Uh, And so Jesus is the thing that's going to help get you through that crisis. And so turning to him is going to be what you, what you want to do. And and God just, he doesn't promise us an easy life. He doesn't promise us that life is going to be good. In fact, he he tells us very clearly that we, that in this world, we will have trouble. Um, And so I would just, I would urge you to not throw your faith out the window because life is going to be hard because God told you it would be. And that's not to sound insensitive or to be insensitive to what you're going through. I'm so sorry that what you're, about what you're going through. Um, one of the things that gives me the, the most comfort about God when I'm going through something that's really hard is knowing that Jesus and, and God and the Holy Spirit, they have compassion for me. So it says in, in scripture, after Lazarus died, um, his sister you know, came to him and Jesus, Jesus, like, why weren't you here? Why didn't you come faster so that Lazarus wouldn't have to die? Um, and it's the shortest you know, passage in scripture, Jesus wept. Well, later, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. So it's not like he didn't know he was going to like bring Lazarus back to life, but he still wept. And I think he wept with her because he mourned with her. He saw her sad and he was sad because he, she was sad. And like, what a loving God that we have that he would look upon us in our circumstance, whether it's small or large, whether it's crisis or just a nuisance, that he would look at you and he would have compassion for you and that he would feel what you feel, even though he knows what eternity is going to bring. I think that's sweet. Um, the passage that comes to mind for me is um, one of the places that I go quite often when I'm facing difficulty. In John 6, um, Jesus has just finished teaching about the crowd that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And uh, John records this. Uh, he says this about that. He says, um, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed 
and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I think of that passage, and I think lots of times in life we may get to those points where we are saying, because notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, no, we're totally cool with that teaching, Jesus. Um, I'm down with it. Yeah, it's great that we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. That's, we, we've been longing to do that for many, many years now. <laughs> that is not what he said. I don't think they understood. I don't think they really understood until later. That, that's a really weird place to be. And Peter just blurts out what I think is one of the most honest things we can say when we're in crisis, and that is this. Do you want to go? Yeah. But where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So if we are questioning our faith because the world and life or whatever isn't turning out the way we want, and I, I don't mean to be callous about that, but I'm trying to summarize whatever that issue is. The question is, where are you going to go, and is that going to be better? Is, is that going to really be better for you? And there's many times that I've said, Lord, I don't like what you're doing, but I don't know where else to go because you have the words of eternal life, and I've come to believe, and I don't know what else to do with this, so I'm kind of stuck with you, and I think you're stuck with me. And I think Jesus is kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of okay with that. I think you need to get more okay with that. So that's just kind of what, that's something I might share with somebody in that position. Yeah, and I would say, too, that, it, that it's okay to ask questions. Like, that's, that is the point. And I think we actually do God, I think we do God a disservice when life is going well and we don't pay him any mind. We don't ask why things, you know. Um, Joe, who was here last week, we were talking, he talked about the Old Testament. I mean, if you never read the Old Testament, you might not know what to do with stuff like this, but read the Psalms, and not even just the Psalms, the, the prophets who were, you know, beaten, all these sorts of things. Like, what do they do all the time? God, what are you doing? Why? And see, what's ironic is sometimes even in the Psalms, they're questioning God's faithfulness over their own bad decisions. It's their fault that they're going through what they're going through, yet they're still asking God. And so I would say that it's absolutely okay, but one of the great things, you know, Romans 8 says that God will work together for the good to those who love him. That does not mean everything will go well, but that even God can use pain and suffering evil for his good. And so, again, if you go to New City, you know my story, you know, losing my, my father to a suicide. But in the aftermath of that, questioning and wondering, I learned things about the character of God that I never would have learned had I not gone through what I'd gone through. Now, the caveat there is, like Peter said, like, you know, Dave was saying, is you've got you've to hold fast even when it's hard. Um, but if you do that, you will learn things that you never would have learned had you not gone through what you were going through. It doesn't make it easy, but it is okay to ask questions, and it's okay to wrestle and struggle. I think it'd be, we'd be doing a disservice to God if we, would, if we were not doing that. So, next question. Is cursing wrong? Did you guys put this up there for me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Dave's going to disagree with me. Um, <laughs> It's a gray area. Um, I cuss sometimes. It's a bad habit that I've had for a really long time. Um, not all the time, but I still struggle with it. Uh, yeah, that it's hard. I think that God, the Lord has really convicted me personally um, because there is scripture talking about like let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Um, and for a, lo a long time, I'll just be honest, um, I didn't really see what the problem was with cussing was. So when I became a Christian, I cussed like a sailor. And so I was like, why do I have to stop doing this? They're just words. As long as you're not saying mean cuss words to a person, I'm just using them as like, you know, to make the speech fun. Uh, I'm not, you know. <laughs> so I was like, what's, what's the problem? Um, but I have found in my own personal, I've been personally convicted by the Holy Spirit and through God's word uh, that it matters what, what other people perceive. And in our context, in our American Western cultural context, for some people, cursing feels unwholesome and is offensive. Um, and so for me, I try not to cuss uh, because I want to be courteous to others. But ultimately, I'd say that this is a really hard question to answer because it seems a little great to me. Yeah. 
Dave. <laughs> so if you want to get technical, here's the thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with an English four-letter word. Like, it's something that we've created, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with it. Um, what the, the, so, so that's one way to say so. And that, technically, no. Like, for example, if you're learning another language and someone teaches you a curse word and you don't know it's a curse word, I don't think it's a sin for you to say it because you don't, you don't know. That being said, the context in which we live, you know, we've kind of agreed as a society what is good to say and what isn't good to say. Um, I don't think God's going to strike anyone down for saying a curse word, but I do think as you grow closer to Jesus, as Paul says, you know, trying to be all things to all people, trying to not let unwholesome words come out of your mouth, knowing where you live and knowing that this is perceived to be an unwholesome thing, I do think it's wise to refrain. And others, Christians that say, would disagree, would say, no, it doesn't matter because whatever. I think generally speaking, in, again, this is just opinion, it's wise to refrain because our society has agreed on these words are probably not the best and they can be taken as unwholesome. So I would do my best that I could to refrain from them. But it's even interesting, if I'm being honest, like if I'm hanging out with just my friends, like a few of my close friends were all believers, and there's a joke with a curse word in it, I'll say it. I'll say it. Because, and that's the thing. Like, I don't know, because, but again, I'm, like, we all know what's going on. We know it's a joke. If I'm with other people, I would not say that same thing. Um, and so, again, there's that like, gray area there. It's just because inherently there's nothing wrong with it. We need to be wise about our culture and our surroundings and how it can be perceived. Not to go Old Testament on you, but uh, one of the Ten Commandments is that um, we would not take the Lord's name in vain. Yep. And that's really specific about using God's name and who he is because his name represents him in a way that's inappropriate. And it's not because God doesn't know his name or God's offended. It's because we as people and creatures are denigrating something that shouldn't be denigrated. So, for example, my kids would say, they, my kids ask me many times, Dad, why is the word damn wrong? It's in the Bible. He said, the word damn is not wrong. Damn has a very appropriate use, damnation, talking about heaven and hell and separation from God. And that is a really weighty thing, that God's judgment would come on somebody and they'd be separated from him forever. Like, whoa, like we should slow down and think about that. And when we use a word like damn or, or say Jesus Christ as an exclamation rather than uh, a, a term of affection and worship, what we're doing is taking something that's really weighty and important and significant and in many effects above our pay grade and denigrating it. So I would say, if you use damn appropriately, that's, that's a really powerful word. To denigrate it makes light of God's judgment. To use Jesus' name in an inappropriate way makes light of God's judgment. And so when you talk about God and the things of God, like to use hell in an inappropriate way, Again, I think it's an appropriate word for the right context. So it's not a curse word. It's the context of how we use them. So that's more of the core of the Old Testament side of things. When you get into, you know, unwholesome, right. man, you can make a long list of unwholesome words. In my family growing up, the word crap was considered unwholesome and inappropriate. But once I had kids, it's like I am elbow deep in <laughs> crap. <laughs> And it wasn't quite an inappropriate word. Like, how do we discuss excrement right. in ways that are appropriate? And so there, there's some gray in there, too. So I hope you guys So I would say try to be wise. And I would also say, as we're answering this question, Christina would say sometimes Rude, are you calling she has, me out? No, I'm, saying, oh, this isn't, I'm saying this isn't good. Christina would say sometimes it would be a struggle for her. Dylan is saying sometimes he will do it on purpose. And Dave actually cursed on stage. So... <laughs> Please don't leave New City Church. We promise we try to avoid it. Next question. I, I do not believe I cursed. <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> Your dad would say otherwise, though. Yeah. No, it was more my mom. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> was all human life prior to Jesus' sacrifice sent to hell? No. Hey, tell me more. <laughs> you, you guys want me to start? Yeah. Um, no. So I'm running in my head. How do I boil down, like, you know, a 45-minute sermon into 45 seconds? So the short answer is everyone who is saved is saved by grace through faith. Everyone. No matter when they lived, no matter if they have lived already or are living or will live. And what I mean by that is this. If you go to Genesis 15, 6, God gives some commands to Abraham, and it says that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then in Romans 4, Paul actually refers back to that, saying that we are saved by faith, even when in the Old Testament their faith was not exactly sure of what the object they were trusting. They knew they were trusting God, so they were saved by faith. By, on, in God's grace, even though they knew it was going to be a savior, but they didn't know what it would look like. They didn't know his name. They didn't know when he was coming. They didn't know any of those things. They just said, God, I believe you. I believe you're going to have to do something with our sin. We have these sacrifices in the system that we kill animals regularly. We know the blood is there. We have this thing concept called the scapegoat. I mean, we could go on and on. But what they did was they said, God, I know I'm sinful and I'm trusting you to deal with this. And I don't know exactly how, but I trust you. And they were saved by their faith because of God's grace. We have the benefit of being past Jesus, knowing that we know the exact object of our faith. We know that he lived. We know that he died. We know the cross. We have much more theology behind it, but we are still saved by God's grace and mercy in our lives through faith, trusting that God has made a way through the gospel, through Christ's sacrifice. So yes, we are all saved by grace through faith, even those who didn't know exactly what they were trusting in. Yeah, I mean... I, yeah, that's that's true. It's ultimately it's not about what we do. It's about did we trust the Lord? Did they trust the Lord? I think sometimes we can look at the Old Testament and think that they were saved by what they did, by their sacrifices. Although it's interesting, just real quick in First Samuel 15, it's the story of Saul, King Saul, King of Israel, and uh, King David is going to you know secede him shortly. And he basically did some good stuff, but he also did some wrong stuff. But he's so oblivious to the wrong stuff that he did, he felt like it didn't matter because if he did anything wrong, he could just make a sacrifice for it and be okay. And so Samuel the prophet responds, this is verse 22, to Saul by saying this. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. And then he goes on and on. But the point is, it's not about doing something to get God to be okay with you. It's about actually honoring and following him with your life. Now, when we do fall short, they had the sacrificial system. We now have Jesus that gives us the grace that we don't deserve. But more than that, he's not looking for us to do things. He's about looking for us to trust and to follow him. And so we have Jesus, and so we can see it. They didn't have Jesus, but again, for them, did they trust and follow the Lord is what was really important. And if they did, then I think then we will, we will see them again. So next one. <clears throat> This morning, we sang about God moving mountains. What mountain has God moved in your life? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, there's there's so many. Um, I think uh, for me personally, there's been a lot of damaged relationships in my life, um, and he's restored some in like powerful ways. Um, and I can't, I don't want to divulge too much because it's more someone else's story than my story. Um, but that was like there was someone in my life that I was like, he, you know, they're, they're the last person who's going to come to know the Lord. They're the last person that I'm ever going to have a good relationship with. Um, and now we have a great relationship. And he moved a mountain in this person's heart and in my heart to forgive um, and just restored a relationship. And it's a beautiful story. I think there's a lot of stories um, of how New City came to be where God moved mountains. There is so much that went so wrong um, in 2016 and the beginning of 2017 in order to get New City launched. Um, and God just showed up and moved mountains. He did things that only he can do and that Dylan and I and the rest of the launch team cannot point to and say, hey, we did a good job. This worked. Um, we just have to say it, it's so clear. God did something here that we could not do. And I'm so thankful. Um, yes, uh, I don't have enough time to tell you all the stories. Uh, let me just give you a few. I came to faith as a teenager out of a Christian family, and I was 100% convinced that God's way of life was dull and boring and, and foolish. And I tried every other way to find satisfaction and fulfillment in life. And even as a 16-year-old, and 16-year-old boys know literally nothing, okay? <laughs> literally nothing. That was me. And I had figured out at that point, the path I am on is foolishness, it is idiocy, it is folly, it is not going to get me anything that I think it's going to get me. Maybe, just maybe, God has a better path for me. That was a mountain. That was something that was just locked into my life. People who knew me were like, wait, you believe in Jesus? No, not you. <laughs> we know you know the story, and you've clearly rejected it. And I was like, yeah, no, I have. It's kind of crazy. Um, we raised support for 18 years in ministry, literally every day, not knowing where our next paycheck was coming from, unless God's mercy and grace moved in other people's lives to give money, and we would, otherwise we would not eat. And we had children with that situation. Like, well, that's crazy. God moved mountains there. Um, we adopted a child with no money, okay, literally <laughs> no money, um, and God provided a way, and we've got a great son, um, and it's just a joy, and we kind of can't imagine our family without him, and yet... That was a mountain. We literally went into the process going, we have no money. We think God wants us to adopt. Here's our process. Okay, we better, we're just going to walk in faith and see what the Lord does. And the Lord was like, I've been waiting for you to walk in faith on this issue for so long. Thank you for doing this. Let me provide for you. So that was a mountain. I, and I could give you a lot of details and stories. Yeah, I, I try to make it quick too, but I, I would say this is why we gather. Like we don't gather to like make each other feel good. God goes, this is true. Like God is true. He is who he said he is and he can change your life and the world. There's so many for me. I mean, I, I've talked a lot about my dad. I mean, specifically for all of you because you're here today. I can remember starting New City, you know, the year before we started the launch phase, I had to raise support to do a residency. And three weeks before I was going to quit my job at Verizon with our first or daughter who was like two months old, um, I was going to quit my job, but I didn't have the money. And I was like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I remember being at Verizon one day, getting an email from somebody who said, hey, we're going to give you $500 a month for the thing. And it put me over the ability and I had to like go in the bathroom to like, not, I just, it was so shocking. I was like, I can't, I, I can't believe this is happening. Like we were short and that's what, $6,000 a year. I mean, that's a, a substantial amount from a family that believed in what we were doing. And I was like, oh, we can do this. I'll say one more, how you guys are sitting here today. We wanted to be in this part of Raleigh. Schools, community centers kept getting told no, 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 no. It was the week of Thanksgiving. Christine and I at the time lived right across the street 
a townhome. We were meeting at our townhome. We didn't know when we were going to launch. We were trying to launch in January of 2017. We didn't have a place to meet. I called this other community center, got to know again, and I was like, God, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, I thought this was where we're supposed to be. As soon as I had that thought, I remembered that there was a church that put their road sign out every weekend, and I never looked up their website for whatever reason. Even though I'm always like looking at churches, see what they're doing. And I was like, where do they, I was just like, where did they even meet? I go on the website, it said that they're moving. And there's so many things that had to happen for us to get the space, but because we had no other options to be in this part of Raleigh, if not for the space, we pursued it, and God has done a lot of great stuff. And so although now we're looking for a new space, being, seeing God's faithfulness in the past helps us be faithful in the, in the present. And so for us, again, this is real. This isn't just like we do this because it makes us feel good. Um, God is who he says that he is. So we'll go to the next one. Do you think it's possible to have a God-honoring same-sex relationship? I think Dylan and I have a God-honoring same-sex relationship. <laughs> yeah, because they're friends. Yeah, he's not being facetious. He's being serious. They're friends, yeah. I Just think, friends. I don't think that's what the question is really asking. Though. No, it's not. Um, there was a similar question in, in the earlier service, and I just want to say to ca- kind of caveat, to kind of preface this before we get started, this is so much a living room conversation as opposed to like a Q&A conversation, so please have some grace for us. This would be a such better, more sensible conversation if we could go back and forth and we could hear your story and you could really sit and talk about things, um, so please have some grace for us with that. Um, I, I would say, based on what I have read and what I know so far um, in my walk with the Lord, no, you cannot have a God honoring same-sex sexual relationship. Um, It's not what God wants, and it is sin. Um, That being said, of course, everyone sins sexually, and everyone is welcome at New City. So, like, let's let's make that clear. Everyone is welcome at New City Church, and we all struggle sexually, and we all have sexual sinful desires, and we all have sinned sexually, and there's no greater level of sin. Sin is just sin. Uh, So, do you guys want to help me out with this? Yeah, I mean, we had a conversation or a question like this. It's hard to answer in this context. I want to say a couple things. One, thank you for your courage in asking that question. Um, I want to say, yeah, it is our conviction that Scripture is clear that God desired uh, sex to flourish, God designed sex to flourish in the context of a a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that are married. That being said, one of the frustrating things about questions like this for me is it's really easy for people to judge people who don't struggle with what they struggle with. So I'm a straight heterosexual male. I don't know what this is like. Um, That being said, I do know a lot more heterosexuals who are sinning sexually than homosexuals. And because we don't, homosexuality might not be a thing for you, it's easy for you to look down upon that, again, God's design for sex is to flourish in the context of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. If you're not in a covenant relationship, marriage, then any sexual relationship is sinful. Pornography is sinful. It is less than what God has for us. Um, But that being said, I know this wasn't exactly the question. I do want to say this, that if this is something that, if same-sex attraction is something that you are dealing with, I I would encourage you to tell somebody. And I also want to say this, that you have a role to play in the kingdom of God. Like, as a straight male, there are probably many times where I say or do things, or things that New City says or does, that if we had someone who is same-sex attracted that would speak up and say, hey, when you guys do this... Or when when you say this, it comes across this way. Because what do we want to do? What does Jesus say? We will be known by our love. And so I think sometimes we feel like, oh, I'm saying sex attracted, there's something wrong with me, and also I can't contribute. But you have something massive that God wants to do in you if you'll you'll let him. And I just want to say, too, this is something that is hard, and it's easy for me to say, well, here's what Scripture says, because it's not a struggle for me. So I don't want to pretend that I know what it's like, other than to say that you are welcome here. I I would love 
to talk with you, to get to know, and I would love for you to play the role that God has for you to play and for you to know that you're not second class, that there isn't something wrong with you. We all have issues, um, but that God uses all of us regardless of what we're going through. And so there's a lot more we could say, but... The only thing I would add would be this, that Scripture's really clear that certain actions are sin. I want to make sure this clear. Certain actions are sin. A tendency or a desire for an action or... Um, being oriented in a particular way is not itself sinful. It's what you do that is sin. So there are many people who may be oriented in a way different from me or oriented in a way that different, that manage to live very godly lives, that do very great things that are different from me, and that is great. I want you guys to think about this as a church. If we start getting into this identity game, well, I'm X other than I'm a follower of Christ, or I'm Y, other than I'm a follower of Christ, we start going into some really, really dangerous places. We start judging. We start saying, well, this is this and this. Is. Let's just focus on there are actions that we would say are sinful, and they're sinful across time and generations, and I don't think the Scripture has changed on that. But there are believers that disagree on that, and I believe that they're believers, and I believe that I will see them in heaven, and we just disagree on that particular issue. I think the Scripture is clear. I think there's other things shaping their exegesis. But as a body, what we should focus on is loving people and helping them deal with their own actions or non-actions and loving them in that context. And anybody who's here who is struggling with any issue, I would say my goal for you would be this, for you to connect with Jesus, to be saved and rescued from your sin by him, and let God work out all those issues in your life over time as he sees fit. I'm very comfortable letting the Lord be at work in your life and the Lord be at work in my life and each of us work through our own stuff, that way God has been given honor and glory, and that's how most of that stuff gets worked out. And apart from that, I don't know how any of us yep. can live a godly life. Yep. So, cool. Thanks for that question. We'll do the next one. <clears throat> Romans 9, 15 through 20 seems to say that God creates people to send to hell. How could a good God do this? That's, that's really hard. Um, I think one thing that's important to remember about the gospel is that if God chose, because, you know, we choose to sin, like we, we have sinful fleshly desires, but at the end of the day, like we do choose to sin. And so God in his holiness, you know, he created people and we, we have chosen not him and we have chosen our sin. And so we've chosen not God. We've chosen our sin over God. Um, if God had decided to save one person, that would be very merciful and, and gracious. If he decided to just save one person because they didn't do anything to earn, their salvation. And so if they, he had saved one person, that would be gracious. And so just because there is a hell, it doesn't mean that there isn't a good God and doesn't mean that he's not full of mercy and full of grace. Yeah, I'll read it real quick. It's a reference to uh, the Israelites and Pharaoh leaving Egypt and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, it says this in verse 15, for, who, for he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my, my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man to talk back to God? Will, will what is formed say to the one who is formed, why did you make me like this? Um, yeah, there's a lot that we could say there. We talked about a little of this in the first service. There, there was a question of like, does, does God choose to save us or do we choose God? Um, and so when you read that, you also see this though, that God also desires all to come to him, that he loves all people. 
Um, I don't know if this will necessarily answer the question, but it would say that, that, that Scripture seems clear that he chooses whom he wants to save. He chose Abraham, the Israelites. If we talk about his first service, Ephesians, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. And I would say, so it's a very beautiful thing, first of all, to know that God chooses you, that it's not just, oh, it was my, my idea one day to, to love God. It's a very beautiful thing. He said, no, God, to know I want you, and I want you, and I want you, that he actually desires you. At the same time, Scripture also says that we're culpable for our decisions. I think maybe to answer this question, there are things that we can't under, completely understand in our finite mind, and that's not a cop-out. That's, that's a God, if God is God and knows more than we do, there ought to be some things that we can't understand in our human condition. But even, I mean, not, not go too much into it, even the whole hardening of heart, what actually was going on there is that you actually see before Jesus, before God hardened Herod's heart, his, his heart was already bent towards disobeying what God wanted, that God had actually given him ways to get out of, ways to not disobey him before Moses showed up with the, with the plagues and all that sort of thing. But I would say God knows more than we do. He desires all to come to know him. But oftentimes, it, as Paul says in Romans 1, that what often actually, actually typically happens is that God ends up giving us over to our own desires. And what hell is, I know we talk about fire and brimstone, and there can be debate about what hell looks like. The reason hell is going to be so miserable is because God is going to be completely absent. And in this world, we kind of have this idea of God, heaven, hell, but we don't know for sure. When we die, we're going to be, you, hell is a place where God is completely not around, and you're going to knowingly be away from someone who is pure of love, light, joy, and compassion. And we also see scripturally that God does not send anybody to hell who does not want to go to hell, that hell is actually a place that God gives us over to our ultimate desire, which is we didn't want him, and so he's giving us the ability to live without him forever. There's more we could say. I know it kind of seems that way, but scripture seems to point out that God wants to save everybody Hell is just him giving us over to our desires if we ultimately choose to live apart from him. Only thing I would add was there are major, major theological differences in how you answer that question yep. within the Christian church of all people who believe in Jesus and believe the word and want to understand it. So yep. that's, it's just not a passage you can do in two minutes. Yeah, but again, if you have a desire towards Jesus, Jesus will save and absolutely transform your life. I think we could ask this because we're wondering... But if God doesn't love me or he didn't choose me, we see he desires everybody to come to know him. So, but there's, yeah, that's kind of hard to answer in a few minutes. Next one. What is significant about Moses and Elijah showing up when Jesus ascended? Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I know it's an Old Testament prophecy, um, but I... I didn't read the whole Old Testament in preparation for this. What? So, well, after Joe's sermon last week, I thought I was, I was planning to prep by just reading the whole New Testament a time or two. And then last week I was convicted that I had to read the whole Old Testament too, uh, and I didn't get through it. So <laughs> I'm just not remembering where it is and what it is. So, Yeah, honestly, without spending some time studying it, I don't have an answer for you, unfortunately. I'd have to look it up. So Dylan will blog about it later. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I don't have, I mean, I'm sure there's some, obviously there's some significance there, but off the top of my head, I don't know what it is. So good question, though. Next question. You Bible scholar, you. That's right. How can we know the text we built the Bible from are the right text, i.e. the story of creation? <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is hard. This is you, Dylan. I, this, is, this is hard to answer in a few minutes, other than to say, I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version is this, that if Jesus came... And obviously, this is, I mean, the story of creation is Old Testament. First of all, we have to know genre, so that's the whole debate of, like, 
are these stories, example for creation. It is poetry. Like, it is poetry. The seven-day creation is poetry. It's not a literally written account. The question is, are we supposed to take it literally or not? So that's a whole other thing. I would say this, though. Um, it's particularly for the Old Testament. Jesus comes. He says he's going to die, resurrect, and he actually does it. And he says he's going to fulfill all these Old, these Old Testament you know, prophecies about him, and he does it. And so if that man who says he's going to die, resurrects, does, and actually does it, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. So I'm not really familiar with the Old Testament. I can say New Testament, it's actually quite fascinating. If you actually spend time, is the Bible reliable? A lot of people say it was changed or was transfer, transformed. It was like the telephone game and how when you do telephone, you forget. Um, if you actually study it, you can't use that excuse. We actually know over 99.5% of the Bible, Scripture, we have, New Testament at least, is accurate to what the original manuscripts were. We don't have the original manuscripts, but it's a whole technical thing that will bore you, but you actually have a, a significantly harder time in the New Testament saying that it was changed than it wasn't. And so I, I love this sort of thing because it actually proves all oh, that. Actually, this is reliable. And if this is reliable, last thing I'll say is sometimes we look at Scripture and we say this, that, they, that Jesus was mythologized, like they got the small details, or they got the big details wrong, right? The problem is, typically when you tell a story, if you get the big details wrong, you're also going to get the small details wrong. And we can study by Scripture based on the names people use, the typography of the places and the, and the Gospels in particular, that the people that wrote these accounts had to have intimate knowledge. It would have been literally impossible for it to be written hundreds of years after the fact because they get everything right in terms of whose name it was, what the place looked like, the weather structures, all these sorts of things. So the challenge is, if they get all the minor details right, which they do, it's quite fascinating, um, then why would they get the big details wrong about Jesus? Um, but yeah, that's, that's hard to answer succinctly. Yeah. There's so. just a lot of evidence out there that it is reliable. Um, if you're research. curious, though, Peter Williams uh, wrote a book last year called Can We Trust the Gospels? It's a short, like, 150 pages, and it's very like, easy to understand. That's a great place to start, I would recommend. And if this question isn't quite about that, if it's more like how did we know that the inspired texts were inspired, one of the things that the tests are really clear is it internally consistent? Does it tell a consistent story is, or does it have problems? And if you look at other texts from that time frame that were purportedly about Jesus or about God, you can see many times they're not internally consistent. Second is, were, there, were they eyewitness testimony? That was a big test that the early church used was, did you actually see this for yourself? Or are you just you know making stuff up? Because if you saw it for yourself, that's more credibility. Third test was, is it externally consistent? Meaning, what we know about reality, does this jive with it? Does this fit all the other texts that we know or from, uh, you know, the what we know about reality, does this match? And then the last test that the church used, and this is, was kind of the one that just became obvious, was does this text teach us what we know about God and is it transformative in our lives? Is the truth that this text is teaching something that changes us and helps us become more like Jesus and isn't come across like, hey, this is a nice story, but, you know, it's just a story. It's, it's not the three pigs and the wolf. This text actually has transformative power used by the Holy Spirit. Those were some of the things that the early church said, and as they started sharing things and passing documents around going, you got to read this. This will change your life. This is about our Savior, Jesus. That's part of the way the church came to the conclusion that these things were not just nice stories, but were actually God's word yeah. to us. And because they're all eyewitness accounts or secondhand of eyewitness accounts, everything in the New Testament was written within 70 years of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. One of the fascinating things is back that time, obviously they don't have the technology that we have now, one of the Holy Spirit things is that when you study church history, all the same letters and gospels were showing up in all the pockets of Christianity who had no contact with one another. So there was obviously something significant about these texts. Great question, um, but 
That's all we really, can say for now. There are yeah. literally books written about this. Yes. So next you should one. read we'll them. Do, we'll do a couple more. Next question. Uh, what is the biblical view of a woman's role in ministry? <clears throat> Hi. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, I mean, the women's role in ministry is huge. Uh, it, the Bible is very clear that women and men are equal, uh, that we were created different by design, but different does not negate that it's not equal. Um, and so uh, the women's role in the Bible is huge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is one that's hard to answer in a couple minutes as well. Um, I would say faithful Christians disagree on this, and that it's not, this is not a mark of faithfulness to Jesus, you have, I mean, maybe you're curious, maybe you're not, you know, the question is specifically about, typically it's about pastoring, because you have texts in the scripture, in the New Testament that seem to say that the pastorate and eldership is reserved only for men. The debate is, was that just for that time period, or is it consistent? Was it like a, just because of the the culture in which they were in, or is it something that is, was actually, for many other various reasons, something that God designs for the church? Um, and that's where the that's where the debate comes into, um, and so that's what's hard. I mean, at New City Church, obviously, uh, not obviously, but you know, we only have men preach. We we kind of our conviction is just to, to be put on, to be honest is that God has designed the role of eldership and pastorship for men. The the thing about that though is very few men are pastors and elders, and so that because of that, ninety nine percent of what men and, and women can do at New City Church is the same. We value women and leadership. We need women's contributions. Over half the church, statistically in the world, is women is made up of women, and so we do a really bad, a poor job if we don't have a diversity of genders making decisions, helping helping out. But again, faithful Christians disagree because the question is: Was Paul and the New Testament writers talking about just that context or for all of time? And only to just add a slight nuance so you guys hear this: the Scripture is also really clear that um, the Lord gives us gifts of the Spirit for our ministry and our service in the church. And I have never heard anybody argue that the gifts of the Spirit are only given to one gender. I mean, no, no one ever argues that. So whatever gift the Lord has given you for the edification and building up of the church, Scripture is really clear about that, that's the gift you should use to edify and build up the church and to serve and to lead and to transform and to develop and all those kind of things. And I'm not using a lot of spiritual gift language, which I should. Um, getting a little brain... M- a little misty in the brain today. But whatever your gift is, you should use. And we, I would affirm that here at New City, we want you to use yep. your gifts in whatever way. So if you're a woman with gifts, we want you to use your gifts, all of them, towards the development of the church. And if you're having a problem with that, please come see Dylan because he can make sure that you can. Um, but again, this is a hard question. And faithful Christians agree. And this is not something that we at New City are going to be like, you have to, like, it's just, it's hard. Yeah, and this is another living room conversation yeah. again. So please have some grace for us with that. Um, but I would say push in though, push in on us. Yeah, um, I would say one thing that I'm really proud of about New City, about Dylan and the leadership here is I think we we do place a high value on on women in leadership. Um, at, you'll see women on stage, um, and not that you have to be on stage in order to lead, because there's tons of behind the scenes things that you can do in leadership, and that is a great way to serve. Um, but we want women to be visible on stage, and that's something that we do really intentionally. And and the reason 
reason we do that is because then other women can see that, that visibility and say, oh, I can lead here too. We want you to be able to lead here and to feel like you can. Um, another thing that Dylan does is we only have one woman on staff. Um, so how many people are on staff? Five? I don't know. Um, but one of them is a woman, um, Brittany Androsian. And Dylan gives her more, more votes than the guys because that's appropriate. She's the only woman on staff. And so she's representing women for New City and for our congregation. So she gets more say, especially when it's something that might be sensitive to women. He allows Brittany to have more votes than the dudes do because she's a, she, it's not equally represented, just so happens to be in our staff because we currently have more men on staff yeah. than women. But hey, if you're a woman and want to join staff. Come on. Um, and so, so that's something that I'm, I'm really proud of. And then I think, you know, there, there is, there's just a lot of confusing things in scripture when it comes to women. And I have struggled with all of the above. Um, but I would just say to lean into that and to do your own research and to, and to read and to pray um, because there are answers for some of these. And one thing that I find super encouraging um, about the scriptures is if you kind of read when the early church started, man, it was a time when women were not valued at all and women were flocking to it. Like, so Jesus was not some man who didn't value women and appreciate women and, and want them to use their gifts in ministry, or else women wouldn't have been flocking to it. Um, so God loves women. He created women. Um, and you do have a role yeah. to play. And again, it's totally fine to have questions about this and to wrestle with it, to read re resources on it. Like, yeah. Um, and to hard. disagree. Yeah, to disagree, for sure. We'll do uh, one or two more. Maybe. <laughs> Just say, yeah. Okay, next one. <clears throat> How will the world end? <laughs> well, if you watch the news about every three months, the world's supposed to end. I'm sorry. just like, okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. Sorry, that was really wrong. I'm sorry. There's, I mean, I mean, scripturally speaking, and we talked about Revelation in the first service, which that was fun. By the way, both of these messages will be uh, you know, on our podcast and upload online, so if you want to watch both. But um, Wait, this is being recorded? Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, shoot. We, I mean, I, there's the, I don't know. I mean, again, it's one of those things that faithful Christians can disagree and I think can spend more time on it than they should. Um, there's a quote, I forget who says it, we say it in our partnership class when we talk about this issue that we'd rather be on the welcoming committee than the planning committee because your job as a follower of Christ does not change regardless of when Jesus is coming back or how that's going to look. Like your job is to love people and help people. Like we say at New City, our mission is to help people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. Some people say that the world's going to get worse and they'll use scripture to say, and then or some people say the world's going to get better until Jesus comes back. I personally have no idea. And I, it's not that I don't care, but it's like one of the issues that I care least about because it doesn't change how we're supposed to live at all. So I don't have an answer for you other than love Jesus, but it will end and Jesus will come back and he will reign. And heaven, as we know, it is a temporary thing. The kingdom of God, he's going to recreate the heavens and the, and the earth and uh, where that's where we're all going to dwell in forever. I don't know how it will happen or when, um, but it will at some point. Yeah, and I think scripture is clear too that we won't know when it will happen, yep. which maybe that's a cop out, but it's when I read that, I'm kind of like, oh, I shouldn't worry about it if I don't. Like it literally says you're not going to figure it out. You're not going to figure out when, you know, the second coming or whatever, so. I just ignore it. There's been a lot of really bad books written about how the world will end. Um, and there's a lot of great books written about the disagreement in, again, the Christ, in Christendom, exactly how this is going to go. And you can be a believer in Jesus and believe the scriptures and be totally committed to them and have slightly different views on this in general. Yeah. So, so not to say it doesn't, it's not insignificant or that it doesn't matter. It's just not the ultimate thing. So yeah. don't have an answer for you, unfortunately. We'll do one more. What would you love to see happen at New City? 
Yeah, there's a lot of things that I would love to see happen at New City. Something that I'm really passionate about is um, seeing marriages get saved. So, you know, marriage is hard. And so um, seeing people's marriages grow and thrive and, you know, for those that are on the brink of divorce or separation get saved. Um, I'd love to see a ton of people baptized and just, you know, watching Jesus change people's lives. I would say this. It's not a secret. It's actually written on the wall right there. Um, our mission is to help people meet Jesus and grow in their relationship with him. So what we would love to see is many people meeting Jesus and growing in their relationship with him. So we would love to see hundreds, thousands, as many as we possibly can be influenced to know Jesus, to love him, to see their lives transformed, to see people come into faith and having them going out and planting new churches and going on and on. That is the mission. It's not a secret. That's what we're aiming for. Everything else of how that plays out, big, small, particular worship style, you name it. All of that is 100% secondary to the mission of to help people meet Jesus and grow in their relationship with him and be followers of him and become more like him and be transformed by the gospel. Yeah, and we ended with this. This was asked the first service as well. In the end, it's about Jesus. Like, it don't, I don't care. This might sound, <clears throat> I think you understand what I'm saying. Like, I don't care about New City for New City's sake. Like we, we're here because we want to see people meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him. It's why we, this year, if you're called New City Home, you know we talked about this Just One campaign. We'd love to see 250 people worshiping with us on the weekends, not for New City's sake, but because it means more people meeting Jesus. One of the things that I would love to see, if New City was the smallest church in, the, in Raleigh, I would consider that a massive win. One of the things I pray for consistently is for the, the other churches in our area to grow because we're all in the same thing. I don't care where you go or where, where you're involved in. I would say be involved somewhere, and I would just I want to see New City play our small part. And so we want to plant churches, we want to send people out, we want to get we want to be generous with our resources, but it's because we want to see people meet Jesus. Like so, when we say we want to see 250 people here, it's not because I want 250 people. I don't care how many people come here. I just again want people to be meeting Jesus. And so everything we do is about Jesus. We're going to get things wrong. We're going to get some things right. Some people's preferences, they're not going to like how we do things. And so then that's fine. I would say go somewhere where you can actually get involved and connected. That's what's most important. And so if you've been here for a while and you're not connected and you're not quite sure, I would, I would seriously, I would love to talk with you and tell you about some other churches that you can find because it's about Jesus. We just want to be faithful where God has us because the gospel, we gather because of the gospel, right? That Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And if we trust and follow him, he will change our life, not just the life to come, but this life here as well. And so we just want to see people meet Jesus. That's why we exist. So, so yeah, I hope that was helpful and fun for you. Dave, will you pray as we close?